Would you take the Bibles that you brought, hopefully, and open in them to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to ask you a personal question tonight. You don't have to answer it honestly, but you should. You're in church. How many of you have ever been on a diet? Raise your hands. (laughs) Of course. This is America. The dieting industry is a $35 billion per year industry. That shouldn't surprise you since... Uh, food corporations spend upwards of $30 billion in advertising. We Americans love to eat. Uh, By the way, what do you think the number one thing I miss most about eating here? You got it. Chile! It's just not the same. I found something that is called the stress diet. I like this diet. For breakfast, you eat a half a grapefruit, one piece of whole wheat toast, eight eight ounces of skim milk. For lunch, four ounces lean broiled chicken breast, one cup steamed zucchini, one Oreo cookie. Hold on. Mid-afternoon snack, rest of the package of Oreo cookies. I'm talking about that. One quart of Rocky Road ice cream and one jar of hot fudge. For dinner, two loaves of garlic bread. Large mushroom and pepperoni pizza. Large pitcher of root beer. Three Milky Ways. Entire frozen cheesecake eaten directly from the freezer. Okay, all of that aside, I have a question for you tonight. What are you hungry for? Now that's a question we typically ask each other after Saturday night church service or Sunday morning or during the week, what are you hungry for? And typically the answer is uh, Thai food or Mexican food or Japanese food. And the truth is, within about a five-mile radius from here, you have every conceivable culinary delight at your fingertips. But I'm asking you this question tonight. What are you hungry for spiritually? Spiritually. It was 1973. You've all heard the story. I gave my life to Christ by watching a Billy Graham crusade. There were no dramatic effects that took place. I didn't see a light come out of heaven. I didn't feel the earth shake. No lightning appeared. But something did change. And what it was was my appetite. I hungered differently. Certain things that I really wanted before I could care less about now. Certain things I could care less about I now hungered for, i.e. spiritual things. In fact, one of my old buddies, Ray, gave me a phone call, and uh, he tried to get me to go out partying with him. Something to the effect of, Dude, let's go party! I said, Ray, quite honestly, I'm not interested. I feel it's a step down Because of what I've tasted and now what I'm hungry for, I don't care about that any longer. You know what it's like? It's like if you've had TV dinners all your life, and for the first time you went out and ate gourmet steak and lobster. You know it's very tough to go back 
to TV dinners after that. Once you've tasted something that good, it's hard to go backwards. So that's the question tonight. What are you hungry for? We're in Matthew chapter 5, and uh, I'm going to zero in on one verse. Uh, Principally, we're looking at the first uh, few verses known as the Beatitudes. The theme, by the way, of the entire sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is kingdom living. Kingdom life. This is how a kingdom dweller lives his or her Christian life in the world. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. How, uh, How does a kingdom dweller, how does a person who makes Jesus the king, how does that person live? I'll sum it up by one word, different, radically different. You can't go through the Sermon on the Mount without seeing a single paragraph that doesn't draw the contrast between the world and the Christian and the radical difference between the two. I want to just give you a few examples of that. If you go down to verse 21... You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Scoot on down to verse 27. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Look at verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Verse 43 is another. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. One final verse I want you to look at, and that's chapter 6, verse 8. sums it all up. Therefore, do not be like them. In other words, whatever you do, don't take your cues on how to live in this world from the world. Don't take your cues from them. Christianity is the ultimate counterculture. We are contra mundum, against the world, against the flow. Now, We read verse 6. That's the one we're going to really zero in on tonight. What are you hungry for? But just glance at the Beatitudes. And once again, notice the difference. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Since when did the world believe that? The lives that we are to live are diametrically opposed in value system to that of the world. Now, you notice the same word is repeated in each of the Beatitudes, blessed, makarios, or makarioi. And it, it means, oh, how happy, blissful, or even to be envied are those who live this way. Listen to it in the Amplified Bible. Blessed, happy, to be envied, and spiritually prosperous, that is, with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation. 
All of that encompassed in one descriptive word, blessed. So tonight, looking at verse 6 and considering all of the Beatitudes, but primarily the sixth verse, I want to talk about being happy. I'm going to give you three things about a happy person. Number one, a happy person is a hungry person. Or to put it in the collective, happy people are hungry people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now that little phrase, hunger and thirst, um, speaks of passion. Have you ever had somebody ask you, what's your passion? What they usually mean is what drives you, what's your goal, what's your ambition? What are you enthusiastic about? What's your passion? People who are passionate about athletics are usually called pros, professionals. They're so enthusiastic, they get so good at it, they excel. Gordon MacDonald years ago wrote a fine book on spiritual passion, and he wrote about a friend who was a football player, professional football player. Six days before his team was going to play the Dallas Cowboys, every day from early till late, they practiced day in, day out. Every night until 12 o'clock midnight, this guy watched video clips of the Dallas Cowboys football team, studied every move. And he said this, Hey, I want to beat those men. I want to hit them so hard if they come into my zone that when they're lying on the ground, they'll look up to the sky with glassy eyes and pray that there won't have to be another play in the game. That's passion. That's enthusiasm. And it's that pursuit of excellence that makes winners out of people. So it speaks, first of all, of passion. But dig deeper. It's not just passion. It's a very intense kind of passion. Hungry people are intense about food. Thirsty people have an intense craving to have that satiated for water. Hunger and thirst, those are strong words. Now, we're in America, and I'd venture to say that very few of us know what it's like to really be hungry, really be thirsty. I know we say we're, you know, we love hyperbole, don't we? We'll say things like, man, that thing weighs a ton. It could be 30 pounds. We say, I'm starving to death. And that could simply mean I heard and felt a hunger pang. <laughs> but we love to exaggerate. It's just the way we are. But keeping it in the context of 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, understand that the people that Jesus was speaking these Beatitudes to got the picture. They lived day by day, paycheck to paycheck, we would say. They would know what it's like to be hungry, really hungry. The average worker in Israel 2,000 years ago had meat once a week. That was the primary source of protein was a weekly diet of a protein source of meat. And the rest of the time, it was very, very scant kind of a meal. Water was even more difficult to come by. No refrigerators 2,000 years ago. No Evian water. No Perrier. They depended on the rainfall and the cisterns collecting it and then going to the well and gathering the water every day. It was a critical thing to be thirsty and even to be hungry. 
A starving person has one all-consuming passion. For what? Food. Nothing else matters. Not what's on television tonight, who won the game. The all-consuming passion of somebody hungry is to get food. 400 years before Christ, Socrates was the eminent philosopher in Athens. And a student came up to him and said to this great philosophical master, he asked him, what is the best way to acquire knowledge, the best way to learn? Socrates did something interesting. He took him down to a river, took the guy by the head and plunged his head underwater and held it for a long time. And the guy tried to struggle loose, and Socrates wouldn't let him go. Finally, in desperation, the guy got away and gasping for air. And Socrates said very calmly, When you thought you were going to drown, what did you want more than anything else in the world? He said, Air. Socrates said, Good. When you want knowledge as much as you just wanted air, you'll learn. An intense kind of passion the words hunger and thirst speak about. Let's dig even a little bit deeper. It's not just passion. It's not just an intense passion. The idea is an intense spiritual passion. Right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A driving ambition for spiritual things. It doesn't say, uh, blessed are those who casually snack after righteousness. Or blessed are those who nibble occasionally after spiritual things. How's your spiritual passion? As you just think and evaluate your own life this evening, what is your own spiritual passion like? How hungry are you for God? Most of you have heard of uh, C.S. Lewis. He wrote a, well, he wrote a lot of great books. One of them that I loved was The Screwtape Letters. And uh, Lewis wrote it from the vantage point of the devil himself teaching his young nephew Wormwood how to tempt people. And over and over again in the book, he says, the goal is not wickedness. The goal is indifference. Now, he's, he's tempting this young uh, demon on how to keep people from being Christians, and once they're Christians, how to keep them spiritually impotent. And he says, the goal is not wickedness. Just make them indifferent. This is what he says in the book. This is the senior demon now coaching the younger one. Keep the prospect, the patient, comfortable at all costs. If he should become concerned about anything of importance, encourage him to think about his lunch plans. And then, he says, I, the devil, will always see to it that there are bad people. Your job, my dear Wormwood, is to provide me with people who do not care. Folks, apathy is the enemy of spirituality. Blessed, oh how happy, to be envied are those who have that deep, intense, spiritual craving. Things of God. If your spirituality is a once a week hobby, frankly, something's wrong. Something's wrong. If you think about the Bible, can you think of a few individuals that would come to your mind when you think about this intense spiritual craving? I can think of several of them. One, Moses. Moses had that. You know, here's a guy who 
heard God speak to him out of a burning bush, watched the waters of a body of uh, the Red Sea open up, uh, had a, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. He saw more miracles than we ever will. And yet it wasn't enough. In fact, he said in Exodus 33, Oh Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Aren't you satisfied, Mo? Think what you have heard and seen. You've seen stuff people dream about. But he wanted more. Show me your glory. David had that as well. God blessed David's life. He heard God speak to him. God promised him a kingdom, a progeny that would sit upon the throne of Israel in perpetuity. Yet listen to him. You know this, Psalm 63. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Or Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. Moses had it. David had it. I can think of another one. Paul had it. Paul had a vision, didn't he, on the Damascus Road, a very dramatic conversion. Um, He also said that he was caught up into the third heaven, that he saw things and heard things unlawful to even talk about, so he didn't even write the account. And yet Paul the Apostle wanted more. He said in Philippians, Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I remember back in the 1970s, boy, that sounds like a long time ago, doesn't it? I remember that those back then who had spiritual passion were given a title. Jesus freaks, they were called. We were called. Jesus freak. Now, that term isn't employed as much today. Uh, People usually just say fanatic or fundamentalist. People with spiritual passion are called fanatics. You know what a fanatic is? A fanatic is somebody who loves Jesus more than you do. That's a fanatic. In the third century in Alexandria, Egypt, the bishop was Athanasius. Boy, he was a bold character. And he made stands for the truth that were unpopular. And on one occasion, someone came up to this venerable church leader. And he said, Athanasius, understand, the world is against you. Athanasius smiled and said, then Athanasius will be against the world. That's an intense spiritual passion. It's sort of a shame that some of us older Christians see the passion of young believers and we kind of dismiss it, don't we? Oh, we may not say something, but it's almost like, oh, I remember when I was like that. Oh, don't worry. Give them time to grow up. They'll, they'll stagnate like the rest of us. Oh, we should applaud that passion. Encourage that passion. Happy people are hungry people. Look again at the verse. Here's a second thought. Happy people are holy people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, principally, notice, after righteousness or for righteousness. Folks, it's more than just being passionate about something. The idea isn't that passion itself is virtue, virtuous or hunger itself is virtuous. 
It's what are you passionate about? What is it that drives you? What are you after in life? The Constitution of the United States gives everybody the right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what most people do. They pursue happiness day in and day out, year in and year out. But so many of them, I would say most of them never find it because they're not seeking righteousness. There's never a real joy and satisfaction because they're not pursuing the right goal. What does righteousness mean exactly? Well, you could translate it a couple of different ways. You could simply call it rightness, the state of being right, or um, uprightness, or even right onness. You could look at it one of two ways. Uh, some people look at this verse and say it refers to right standing with God. Others say it speaks of having an upright walk before men. I submit to you, it means both. To hunger and thirst after righteousness means, first of all, that you hunger to possess righteousness. Second, that you hunger to practice righteousness. And third, that you hunger to promote righteousness. Let let me explain briefly. If you're living right as a child of God, You have a hunger to possess not your own righteousness, not self-righteousness, not I've done this, I've done that, I've earned something, but you realize you stand in His righteousness. You come empty before the cross and He fills you. You know, Paul's problem was self-righteousness to his own admission. In Philippians, he gives his pedigree, his autobiography, and he goes down the list. He says, Uh, I was uh, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews. He said, uh, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Listen to this. Concerning righteousness that comes through the law, I was perfect. I kept the law. I was blameless. But he goes on to say, all that I thought was really cool, I'm paraphrasing, I've given up. I don't hold to that any longer. That I might know him and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is through faith in Christ. So if you hunger after righteousness tonight, you will have an intense desire to be right with God, and you realize you can't do it on your own. That you have to enjoy what he gives you in terms of righteousness. It also means a hunger to practice righteousness, to live right lives. This is a strong appetite for godly living. Let's give it another title, obedience. Obedience. Do you have a desire to obey Christ? To really obey Him, whatever He tells you to do, wherever He tells you to go, according to the dictates of Scripture? Now, go back, would you, to the first beatitude, and notice there's a flow here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's how you begin your Christian life. You realize, I'm bankrupt. I'm poor. I'm poverty-stricken. I have nothing to offer God. I admit that I'm poor, which leads me to the next one. Blessed are those who mourn. You mourn over your spiritual condition. It creates meekness. Blessed are the meek. The best description of meek, I think, is divide the word up. Me. Ech. That helps, doesn't it? Me, ach, oh. 
Now, with that realization as I come to him, that creates in me a hunger, that's the next beatitude, and thirst to practice righteousness because he makes me righteous. What is the difference between spiritual infancy and spiritual maturity? Ever thought about that? You ever see somebody spiritually mature and somebody who is spiritually an infant and you wonder, why? What's the the hinge? What's the reason? What's the difference? One word. Appetite. Appetite. A deep, intense appetite for holiness, righteousness, obedience to him. It's not how many years you've been a Christian or how many years you've been in a church You know the old saying, you are what you eat. If you eat a little, you'll grow a little. You eat a lot, you'll grow a lot. Charles Spurgeon, and you've heard me quote this if you've come for years. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says, in the church of God, there are little children who are 70 years old. Yep, little children displaying all of the infirmities of declining years. One would not like to say of a man of 80 that he has scarcely cut his wisdom teeth. And yet there are such. On the other hand, there are fathers in the church of God, wise, stable, instructed, who are comparatively young men. The Lord can cause his people to grow rapidly and far outstrip their years. To hunger and thirst after righteousness means that you hunger to possess it, You hunger to practice it. You hunger, third, to promote it. To promote it. That is, now that you have experienced this joy of being right with God and that that appetite for holy living, you want to tell others how to be right with God. That's why you pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. And through evangelism, you want to spread the righteous rule of Jesus into the lives of as many people as you can. Christians can have one of three attitudes toward this world around us. Face it. We all read newspapers and hear news reports and we go, this world's so bad. You can have one of three responses to that. Number one, intimidation. You get intimidated by it. It's so bad, there's so much of it, and you think, I'm so insignificant. A second reaction you can have is isolation. They're really bad. I'm going to make sure I don't hang out with any of them or get close to any of that, so I'll isolate myself into my own little group and protect myself. We want an escape. Some of us, if we were honest, would love a Christian village. Think of it. Everybody on your street is born again. Every business owner down the street downtown loves Jesus. All of the police are Christians. All of the firefighters are Christians. The mayor, all the politicians are Christians. Whoo, now we're dreaming. You just described heaven, not earth. Some people think, wow, if I could just work at church... I'd love to work around Christians. That'd be the greatest thing. Take it from somebody who's worked with them for 23 years. It's not all it's cracked up to be. Oh, it's wonderful. But we all have flaws too. And hang around us close enough for a period of time and you'll see it. 
So it's not intimidation. It's not isolation. Here's the best response. Infiltration. Go get them. Go tell them. Go spread or promote the righteous reign of Christ. Be ambassadors for the gospel. You're the salt of the earth, Jesus will say in a few more paragraphs. You are the salt of the earth. The salt, the salt must leave the salt shaker. This is the salt shaker. It's great to be together. Don't you love it? But the salt to do good needs to leave the salt shaker. Spread it around. Edmund Burke said, All that is needed for evil to prosper is good men to do nothing. So, let's get back to this. Happy people are hungry people. Happy people are holy people. And there's a third, and we'll close with this. Happy people are hearty people. Hearty people. They will be filled. Uh, You could even say happy people are heavy people. I kind of like that. They will be filled. That's the result of it. The word, by the way, shall be filled, cortazo, to be satisfied with food. It's a word that was speaking of feeding cattle. And uh, they would have so much that they would back away from the stall because, or from the feeding trough because they're satisfied. Cortazo or filled, it's the feeling you get when you're done with the meal. When you're done with the meal, you, oh, you push the plate away. You're done. You're filled. You're satisfied. Jesus promises satisfaction, contentedness, a filling, a feeling of, ah, done, satisfied. Now, here's the paradox. Though you always hunger for more, you're continually satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, and it's that continual hunger, continual thirst, they will be filled. Now, doesn't that sound almost like a contradiction, a paradox? You're hungry, but you're satisfied. Let me explain how it works. If I go to a favorite restaurant, like a favorite steak restaurant, and order my favorite steak, or in my case, I love seafood. Let's say I go order my, my favorite slab of fish. And if it's done just right, I walk away going, Ah, oh, that was great. I don't say, That was so good, I never want it again. That's not what it means to be satisfied. It's the very satisfaction that will later on cause a perpetual hunger. Question. Are you bored with God? Be careful how you answer that. Are you bored with God? What I mean by that is, okay, you've come to church, we're Christians, we say we love God, we're involved, but could it be that you are trying to be fulfilled, filled up with other stuff? Besides that perpetual hunger and thirst after spiritual things, godly things. Because if as a Christian you're going to the world for satisfaction, you're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That's why you're not filled. God created us with a need to experience his righteousness. Nothing else will satisfy. Solomon found that out. Solomon wrote a whole book about it. First words out of his mouth, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. And you know the story in Ecclesiastes, he tried it all, and he was empty. Several years ago, I met with a businessman from this community up in my office upstairs. He had so much money. And he sat down in the chair and he wept like a little baby. He said, Skip, I am so empty. 
all of my assets, all of my pursuits have not gained me any satisfaction. I said, buddy, you need a change of appetite. And that comes with a change of heart. This is what will happen. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, and that is your perpetual longing, and you keep coming to this well of God's grace and goodness to be filled, not only will you be satisfied, you'll be so full that you'll have, let's call it leftovers for other people. You'll benefit others. Two people I'm going to draw contrast to as we close. One is named Max Jukes. How many of you honestly know about Max Jukes? You don't. Here's why. He lived in New York at the same time Jonathan Edwards did. He did not believe in Christ or in Christian training. He refused to take his children to church even when they asked to go. Max Jukes has had 1,026 descendants. 300 were sent to prison for an average term of 13 years. 190 were public prostitutes. 680 were admitted alcoholics. His family thus far has cost the state in excess of $420,000. They made no contributions to society. Compare that with Jonathan Edwards. Anybody heard of him? Jonathan Edwards lived in the same state at the same time as Jukes, He loved the Lord, saw that his children were in church every Sunday, served the Lord to the best of his ability. He has had 929 descendants, and of these, 430 were ministers, 86 became university professors, 13 became university presidents, 75 authored good books, 7 were elected to the U.S. Congress, 1 was vice president of his nation. His family never cost the state one cent, but has contributed immeasurably to the life of plenty in this land today. Blessed. Oh, how happy to be congratulated, to be envied, are those who have that passion, intense passion, intense spiritual passion, not just about life, but about righteousness, His righteousness, to practice it, to promote it. They will be so satisfied. They'll walk through life going... And others will benefit. Folks, that's a happy life. Amen? Now, let's pray and do business with God. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we're gathered here tonight. We're in this place, this facility this beautiful building. Lord, we have a hunch you don't really care a lot about the building. You care about the people that are inside of it. And Lord, you care about all of those listening to this across America right now. And your Holy Spirit is doing a work beyond what any staff or preacher or anyone else could do on a human level, you are doing a divine, deep work. And some of it is to the body of Christ. Some of us, Lord, have looked for satisfaction at the wrong well. 
Oh, we've been hungry and we've been thirsty, but we have to admit it's not for righteousness' sake. Forgive us. Correct our appetite. Set us on fire once again. Help us never to relegate the, the whole idea of intense spiritual passion to immature Christians, but to mature ones. Lord, we want to pray for those who may be here tonight who have perhaps thought that they were just fine the way they were. But tonight they recognize, I have not been right with God. My life isn't what it ought to be. And as you're searching your heart, maybe tonight you're thinking, the thing I need to do is to give my life to Jesus Christ. If you're thinking that, you're right. You do. And I'm going to give you that opportunity as our heads are bowed and we're praying. If you're in this auditorium tonight and you want to know what it's like to have a clean slate before God, to be washed whiter than snow of all of your sins, to have purpose and meaning, to have that feeling of loneliness banished, and to experience the grace and love of God. And with that will come a change of appetite. If you want that, as we're praying, I want you to slip your hand up in the air and keep it up so I can see it. And I'll pray for you as we close this service.